Hey everybody, it's great to be with you today. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, my name's Pastor Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at, at Grace Church. Uh, one of the reasons it's been a while, I've been doing a lot of traveling lately. Um, <clears throat> I had a board meeting uh, back in February in Florida and uh, I, made, I made a crucial mistake when traveling. Everything was going great, flight was on time. Uh, dropped my car off, got through TSA, got uh, everywhere I needed to go. And I, I thought to myself as I stopped, stepped off the plane, I was like, wow, that's probably the easiest travel experience I've ever had. And then I went to rent a car and I waited in line about the amount of time it took me to fly from Cleveland to, to Tampa. So that didn't work out so well. <clears throat> so I'm at this board meeting and the final day, uh, we have this big meal and uh, it was all you can eat fish. We had gator bites, coconut shrimp. We had crab fries, sweet tea, lettuce salad, all, all these things. I thought, oh, this is, this is great. You know, all the seafood and things. And uh, that night I remember calling Jennifer. It's like, man, I, I, don't think, I don't think my stomach does well with that fried food. And about 3 a.m. in the morning, I got to taste it all over again. And it was not pleasant. And so <clears throat> I ended up missing my flight, had to make another, other flight arrangements, had to find Ubers, had to change this, change that. Uh, Uber experience was, was interesting with the guys that I had. Um, talked with one guy for about two hours on the drive to Orlando. And uh, man, I, rule, rule number two is never eat coconut shrimp uh, before, before flying the next day. Uh, so it's been interesting traveling. I went down to South Carolina to preach at a Gathering Point, our, our campus down there. And again, trip went great. Got to the airport coming home. Got to the airport about 5.30 in the morning as early flight. Get through TSA. Everything was doing great. And I'm heading to my gate and my phone goes off and I look and it's like, your flight's been delayed till 11 a.m. Well, seeing as that I had a connecting flight at 9.30 a.m., that wasn't going to work. So I went back to the ticket agent, and there was 100, probably 150 people in front of me. I was like, oh, boy. It's like, maybe I can drive to my connecting flight. So I started thinking about it. It was a shorter line. I was like, man, if I've already done an Uber in Florida just a couple weeks ago. I can do this again. But I'll, maybe I'll ask somebody to share uh, the cost with me. So I st started talking to people and guys like, yeah, you know, got to stop for coffee and got to do this and that. I'm like, man, this is going to be a tight window. So finally, this couple approaches me and they're like, hey, we, we want to drive uh, to the next airport, but um, we've never done Uber before. I was like, I've done it. <laughs> so I felt like the expert, even though I'd only done it twice. Um, I said, I'm, I'm next in line, I'll wait for you guys. As I'm waiting for them, they're talking to a lady and they come up to me and say, hey, we were talking to Jane here and Jane has a Ford Expedition. Said, we're gonna go with her, you're free to join us. So I get in, a, I get in this uh, Ford Expedition with all these strangers. And uh, at this point I hadn't told them that I was a, I was a pastor yet. And uh, uh, so finally it comes around because it, it just gets awkward. Uh, people don't know what to say. I say, yeah, I'm a pastor. And Dave speaks up, hey, I sing on my worship team and tell me about church. And then Jane, who's driving, she's like, hey, wait, 
you mean to tell me we're all believers in this car? And it was a great time. We had about an hour and a half just about faith, family, other things. The Lord's been teaching me a lot through through traveling. And I, I guess another lesson would be whatever you're going through or experiencing, there's people who are willing to go with you. Uh, she dropped me off at the airport right where I needed to be dropped off. I got to the gate with 13 minutes to spare. It was a, both of these days were a long day. <laughs> And I think we've probably all had a long day. But today we're gonna to look at a, a fascinating story of what I believe was one of the longest days in Jesus's life. So if you have your Bible or your device, turn to John chapter six. It's the fourth book in the second half of your Bibles in the New Testament. Uh, as Jesus often does, he starts with the material and physical in order to get us to think about the spiritual. Here in chapter six, he moves from physical hunger to spiritual satisfaction. And I just gotta say, because this is such a long passage, we're gonna go through a lot of it, but we're also gonna be skipping parts of it. Uh, there's a lot of theological truths in this passage. So I, I really encourage you to take some time this week to open this up and read through the entire chapter on your own. Um, there's, there's a lot that, um, just don't have time to talk about today. But I wanna give some context. So before all the things happen in, in John chapter six, Jesus gets the news that Herod has beheaded his cousin, John the Baptist. Not only that, but he's, he's sent out the, his disciples and, and now they're returning, they're reporting everything that they've, they've done. And, and so after this debrief, Jesus suggests, hey, let, let's go get some rest. And they go to get some rest and, and the crowds just kind of follow. The crowds gather around them. So I want you to imagine this. Jesus is, is grieving. He's been healing and teaching all day. It's been a long, exhausting day already. But really what Jesus does next shows a deep level of compassion and service. In fact, Mark describes it for us in, in Mark chapter six. He says, when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So because there's so many people in a place where the food was not available, Jesus performs this incredible miracle you've probably heard about, the feeding of the 5,000. Feeding 5,000 men plus all the women and children with a boy's lunch of five small loaves and two small fish. And I, I, think, about, I think about being there, I think, man, what, I wonder what that bread tasted like. I mean, it was probably like the original Wonder Bread. Uh, you know, when, when Jesus turned water into wine, they said, man, this is the best wine available. Imagine what these sandwiches were like. This was, this was some good food. Uh, I remember the best bread I've ever had was fresh, fresh baked bread, French bread we had in Africa. Um, kind of lived on it for seven weeks. Um, that is until the day I bit into my bread and I got a mouthful of sand and the missionary said, yeah, sometimes they drop the bread in the sand and, and they sell it anyways. So I watched a little bit closer what I was eating from then on. But the Gospel of John tells us about this bread and says, and Jesus took the loaves, the five loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. 
So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Here's a few things we need to understand about bread in that culture and time period. Number one, bread was an essential part of every meal. It was, it was akin to maybe our meat and potatoes. Everyone had access to bread. Bread was a means of fellowship. When you broke bread with someone, you were, you were friends for life. Uh, to the Jews, bread symbolized God's presence. In fact, in the temple was the table of showbread, which interpreted in the, in the Hebrew as, as face bread. Uh, it was a spiritual symbol for God himself, a reminder that every time they eat bread, they should think of him. So today we're going to talk a lot about bread. And so if I don't leave you hungry, I, I haven't done my job. Um, but in our culture, we don't think about bread as much. But there's a Russian proverb that says, with a piece of bread in your hand, you'll find paradise under a pine tree. <laughs> I get a kick out of that. Uh, must be some good bread. But actually, I think what it speaks to is it speaks to the relationship of bread with life. So what Jesus does is just simply an amazing, astounding miracle. So all this happens, evening comes, the disciples without Jesus get into a boat, they set across the lake. The wind starts blowing, a storm starts brewing, the lake gets rough, they've been rowing for three and a half miles, they're probably exhausted, and they're still only halfway to where they need to be when they see Jesus walking toward the boat. <laughs> the text says they were terrified, and then Jesus says, it is I, in other words, I am, I am, don't be afraid. So they take him into the boat and immediately the boat reaches shore. Now again, I want you to understand, Jesus is grieving his cousin. Even though he's tired, he feeds what was probably more like 10 to 15,000 people bread and fish with plenty of leftovers. He walks three and a half miles across the lake, settles a storm, brings them to shore, and then they get out of the boat, the crowd, <laughs> another crowd finds him, the same crowd actually finds him and starts pressing in on him again. Ever have a long day? <laughs> and that's where we pick up our, our next name of Jesus. We've been in this series for a couple of weeks, Jesus Is, and we've been, talking, we've been talking about how uh, Jesus has revealed himself as God, as the I Am. Last week, uh, Aiden led us through, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, each of these names tells us something different about Jesus, points us to not, to not just knowing about Jesus, but truly knowing him, his impact, his influence, his authority that he has in our lives. So this is so essential to our understanding because most religions outside of Christianity and even some who claim the title they simply diminish Jesus, saying, well, he was a great man, a great teacher, a prophet, but he wasn't God in the flesh. He wasn't living among us. If, if we don't understand what Jesus says about himself and trust it, then we'll diminish him in our lives. In other words, we'll see Jesus as important, but not central, as prestigious, but not preeminent. 
will see Jesus as helpful, but not essential. The Gospel of John uh, records these miracles and teachings of Jesus so that we can know him, so that we can respond to him. In fact, John states his purpose later in John chapter 20. He says, but these, these miracles are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus has just fed the crowd and they, they follow him to the next town. And what follows is a, is a hard discussion that Jesus has that, that ends up really driving many of them away. They find Jesus, we read in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the, the signs I perform, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. See, Jesus doesn't waste any time. He calls their bluff immediately. He says, you seek me because you had a good meal and you were, you were filled not because you believe who I am. In other words, there are those people who seek the Lord not because they love the Lord, not because they want the Lord in their lives, but they simply want what he gives. They seek the gifts rather than the giver. Uh, theologian and writer C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, earthly pleasures are supposed to function like rays of the sun that direct us back to their source. In other words, the, the ray warms us. It sheds light in dark places, but the source of the warmth and light is not the ray itself, but the sun. See, marriage, sex, marriage, uh, money, uh, children, friends, good foods, they're all gifts. They're, they're the sunbeam that points to the sun, to the giver. You see, they, they woke up early the next day. They were hungry again. They approached Jesus, hey, that, that miracle yesterday, that meal was great. That was so cool. But what's for breakfast? <laughs> you see, they, they want to benefit from another miracle. They want the gift, but not the giver of the gift. And Jesus continues, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. In other words, Jesus is saying, man, it's not about the food, it's about me. You see, they want a snack, Jesus offers them a feast. Again, C.S. Lewis says it well. He says, aim, <clears throat> aim at heaven and, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you'll get neither. You see, at this point, they're aiming for earth, their, their immediate needs. And so we're not to seek God as a means to an end, but seek him as the end of all means. Jesus is wanting them not to work for material and physical things, but to put their priority on spiritual things. And so they ask, well, what must we do to do the works God requires? In their minds, they, they think Jesus is asking, you've got to do something to earn your salvation. If you want to get to heaven, you've got to work for it. Work for a right relationship with God. You see, they heard work, but they failed to hear Jesus say it was a gift. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You can't buy it. It's a gift. So Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What's Jesus getting at? Our relationship with Jesus is not an exchange, just an exchange of goods and services. 
And when I got married, I wasn't thinking, okay, Jennifer, I'll, I'll love you if you cook, you clean, do laundry, keep me comfortable and happy. <laughs> now, I don't see my relationship with Jennifer as an exchange of goods and services. No, I desire a relationship with her based on who she is, not what she can do for me. These people are thinking, I have to do something. Jesus is saying, you have to believe someone. But if you insist on working, here's your job description. Believe in the one the Father has sent. I think most people today are in that first category. That's why they say, yeah, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm trying my hardest. I'm, I'm trying to get to church. I'm reading, trying to read my Bible. I, I come to communion when I can, hoping uncertainly that those things will be enough. But if finding peace with God, getting to heaven depends on how good you are, how good do you have to be? Are you, are you, setting, the stand, are you setting the standard or, or is the guy behind the subway counter setting the standard? Who's setting the standard? For them, God is in heaven wanting them to jump through hoops to please him. Jesus says, it's none of that. There's only one who's good, and that's God. Your greatest need is Jesus. And so the work of God is this, believe in him who he has sent. Jesus is talking about himself. You've seen me do the miracle, but you're so obsessed with the bread, you miss the giver of the bread. If you really saw me for who I am, that belief would be enough. So Jesus is setting the tone and content for a discussion that's life-changing. But sadly, most will miss it. So in verse 30, they ask him, what sign then will you give that, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? <laughs> you think, oh, well, what's wrong with that question? I mean, what part of the free lunch yesterday did they not get? He took five loaves, small loaves, two small fish. He fed you all and then filled 12 baskets with the leftovers but they want more. It's like the first time you do something fun with a three or four year old and what do they always say? Do it again. And so you do it again and what do they say? Do it again. And so you do it again and until you're exhausted, but it's like, do it again, daddy, do it again. And then they tell Jesus, hey, Moses gave us man in the wilderness every day for 40 years, what are you gonna do? You see, when the Israelites escaped from Egypt, they made a beeline to the promised land, but because of their disobedience and lack of faith, they had to wander in the desert for 40 years. There aren't a lot of resources in the desert, so every day God provided something called manna for them to eat. Now they challenge Jesus. He's like, hey, Jesus, you gave us food yesterday, but that was, that was really only one meal. Moses did more than that. You see, manna was amazing stuff that could be made in uh, all kinds of stuff like manicotti and, and banana bread. Yeah, the obligatory pastor joke right there, okay? I had to throw it in there. But, but the people continue. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. All of a sudden, they're comparing Jesus' dinner to Moses in the wilderness and the manna that came from heaven. I was like, okay, well, how, why are they making this comparison? Because Moses himself said, the Lord God will send another prophet like me to you. And they want Jesus to give more bread for proof. So Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, or with great assurance, I tell you, 
It's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus points out, Moses didn't give you that bread. The Father provided that for you. Later on in verse 49, he states that they were fed physically, but eventually everyone who ate the bread died in the wilderness. Then he says, my Father, God, doesn't give just physical bread. He's provided bread that's eternal and satisfying. His bread gives life. In other words, Jesus is more than what we know we need. He's more than what we know we need. This is where Jesus uh, starts to expose certain things about their expectations, uh, about their heart. First, Jesus addresses them at their need and says, your perceived need is not your actual need. They were coming thinking, there's, there's more manna on the way. How, how great would it be if this guy fed us for 40 years? That would be the life. But Jesus is more than what we know we need. In fact, in the original language, the Greek, there's a few ways to talk about life. In English, we, we only have one word for it, but it, it looks like this. We could, we could talk about life a couple different ways. I could, I could run and say, hey, is, is he alive? In other words, you know, is he, is he physically well? Is his heart still beating? Is his brain still functioning? Or I could come to you and say, hey, how's life? Completely different. I'm asking, you know, how are your goals and aspirations working out? How are you doing? Same word, but two different meanings. In the Greek, they have different words to express different meanings. One of the words for life is, is bios. Bios means physical life, material life, biology. The other word for life is the word zoe. It's, it's not talking about physical life but a life that transcends the physical, the quality of life, an eternal life. In fact, Jesus uses this word for life, zoe, in, in Romans 6.4, when he says, we've been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of zoe, eternal life, spiritual life. Now, John's writing about bread, and he has these two words that he can use. You have people who are coming to Jesus looking for bread, looking for something uh, to meet their physical need. And you would expect to see the word bios used. But what does Jesus say? Don't look for food that perishes, but look for the food that gives zoe, eternal life, spiritual life. In other words, you have a hunger that transcends your physical hunger. You have a thirst that transcends your physical thirst. You have a zoe need that you're trying to fill with a bio solution, and it's going to fail you. Jesus exposes their need. He says, look, guys, you're concerned with your stomach, but I'm concerned for your eternity. Well, they still don't get it, so they respond, all right, sounds great. Give us this manna 2.0. And what they saw was the opportunity for a walking bakery. Give us this bread always. But they were blind to the spiritual truth Jesus is trying to convey to them. They're, they're not connecting. Their stomachs ruled their minds and hearts. They, they didn't know how to see beyond their day-to-day -day experiences and physical needs to the giver of Zoe life that stood right there in front of them. To make it all clear, Jesus declares twice in, in this passage, in this section, 
He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then he says it again later on. Very truly, I, say, I tell you, uh, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. What's Jesus saying? The giver of the bread is himself the bread. How do you receive eternal life? You believe. Not by works, not by being good enough or charitable enough or religious enough, but the one who believes, the one who puts their complete trust and confidence in Jesus, arranges their life and priorities around him, will live forever. Jesus says, I am more than what you know to look for right now because Jesus is more than enough. Their response, it says, they begin to grumble because... While they enjoyed the benefits of his miracles and thought he was a great teacher and possibly a prophet, they saw him just as an extraordinary man. In fact, they say, we know his parents. How can he say he's from heaven? That's not the only thing they couldn't understand. In the context, context of being the bread of life, Jesus makes a shocking statement. <clears throat> He'll go on from here to say, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And I think if Jesus had said that today, social media would have had a field day. My, my news would have had this clickbait headline. The clickbait is just uh, sensational uh, headlines to get your attention so you'll go to a site. But imagine the headline, Jesus promotes cannibalism. Jesus tells people to drink his blood and eat his flesh. What in the world is going on here? And see, this would have been even more shocking for his Jewish audience because the law said it was forbidden to take blood of any kind, to drink blood, to, to eat bloody meat. Those steaks and veal had to be well done. And some will say he was talking about communion, talking about the bread in the cup. But Jesus hasn't instituted the bread in the cup yet. I don't believe it's talking about communion here. Add to this, Jesus has already just established that eternal life comes from belief, not works. To make communion an act of salvation would require us to do something to earn our salvation. Not only that, the language Jesus uses refers to a one-time event, not something that's repeated. So in other words, once you, in Jesus's words, eat his flesh and drink his blood, it's done. So what does Jesus mean? I think it's clear from the context that he's speaking in spiritual terms, not literal physical terms. That's why he says later in verse 63, the spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. See, the context in which he's saying all these things is belief. Eating and drinking is equivalent to believing in him. And he's making it raw and real to, to get their attention. Here's Jesus's point. True life will come from my sacrificial death for you. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give my body. I'm going to spill my blood. And you have to see and recognize and believe in me. Jesus is saying, if you want life, it's in me. Nowhere else, no other source. So he's unpacking this I, I am statement. I am the bread of life. And this is the turning point for the crowd. This is the definition of life that they just can't accept. Jesus comes and says, I have not come to bring bread. I have come to be the bread. 
I've not come to improve your life. I've come to be your life. The true Zoe is that, that Jesus is the bread of life, which means that he is both the means and the meaning of life. The means by which we are to live and the meaning about what life is all about. But it didn't stop there. He goes on to even be more polarizing than that. He says, whoever comes to me in faith will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Jesus looks at them and says, I am all you need. I am the thing that you're looking for. To have me and nothing else is to have everything. Therefore, turn from whatever it is you're currently looking for in life. And the crowd hears that and they respond, nope, <laughs> Not going to do that. For them, they were fine as long as they got Jesus the bread maker. They loved that guy. They, they wanted to make that guy king. But as soon as Jesus demands allegiance, as soon as Jesus, Jesus says, the thing you're currently looking to in life, the bread you want, won't actually fulfill you. Turn from that and trust in me. And as soon as he draws that line in the sand, the crowd walks away. They walk away saying, man, that, that, was a hard, that was a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Hard teaching, that, that word hard is from the word uh, scleros. You may be familiar with uh, arterial sclerosis, the, the hardering of the arteries come, comes from this word. What it means here, it doesn't mean that it was hard to understand, but this teaching was hard to tolerate. In other words, they didn't like Jesus' teaching. It's hard, difficult to tolerate, hard to swallow this kind of truth. And we'll, we'll see this a lot over the next few weeks. There's a lot of truths in the Bible that are easy to tolerate. You know, we didn't talk about love and grace and heaven and peace and acceptance. That's one thing. But then there's an equal amount of hard truths to hear things like hell, sacrifice, persecution, judgment. Jesus is saying some difficult things to this group. In verse 66, it says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They couldn't tolerate the fact that Jesus was claiming to be from heaven, that he was more than a human prophet, but the Son of God. They couldn't believe the fact that he is the bread of life who offers eternal life to all who believe. So they take their hungry stum stomachs and emptiness and go home. Jesus offered what they needed, but not what they thought they wanted. And then I think this is a powerful moment. Jesus turns to the 12 and asks, you guys want to leave too? And I, you know, we give Peter a lot of grief. We give him a hard time. He was explosive and impulsive at times, but he was a passionate follower of Jesus. And I love what he says here. Jesus says, do you want to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Peter understands they're at a crossroads, but he doesn't have to think about it very long. He says, Lord, if not you, to whom, to whom will we go? It's the heart of a true follower of Jesus. There's nothing without you. 
If we left from this spot right now and never came back, where would we go? Who has the words you have? Who has the ministry you have? There's no, there's nowhere else to turn but to you, Jesus. You see, Peter understood without Jesus, we have nothing. At times, Jesus confused his disciples. He embarrassed them, frightened them. And yet Peter understood just how remarkable his words and his person really were. Jesus' words explained who they are, gave them perspective. They were satisfied by Jesus. He, he fit the prophecies, fulfilled the predictions. Peter recognized him as, as the great I am. Where else would we think about going? What would cause you to respond like the people who left? What would cause you to say, I'm done, I'm, I'm through, I'm deconstructing my faith and leaving it all behind? My hope is that your answer is like Peter's. Where else would I go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else but God can satisfy this eternal longing in my heart? And sure, there's other things we can follow. There's things we can commit our lives to, things like education and power and prestige and sports and possessions and dreams and recreation. But in the end, they're not enough. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Feast on me. Be filled forever. We've got, we've got the bread of life. We've got living water that, that quenches our thirst, the Zoe bread that, that satisfies our spiritual hungry, hunger. Do you know him? Have you found that kind of fulfillment and satisfaction in your life? To whom or to what will you go? What are you looking for? Too often we're, we're trying to fill a Zoe, a Zoe need with a BIOS answer. But you need a Zoe solution for your Zoe need. So let me ask, just to end with some, some heart-level diagnostic questions today that may help determine where you might be trusting a BIOS answer for a Zoe need. The first question is, what one thing do you most hope is in your future? You see, we can chase satisfaction and fulfillment in this life by always looking for the next thing. We're in high school and we dream of the day of our independence to be on our own. And we realize, man, to make to make this work, I've got to get a job. And so we think our job will give us what we want. And then we see the taxes and bills and inflation. And, and then we think, well, if I just get married, I'll be fulfilled. And we, we get married. And then we think if we have children, then we'll be satisfied. And we have children. And sometimes they don't follow the script of our dreams or we wait for the day they move out of the house. Then we hope for grandchildren. Then, then the dream of retirement and vacations, but our health begins to fail. And on and on it goes, pursuing one thing or another to find fulfillment and satisfaction. And it never ends till we draw our last breath. What are you chasing today, hoping it will give you purpose tomorrow? Another question, if if you could change one thing about yourself right now, what would it be? Lose 30 pounds, change your looks, your marital status, your job, your zip code. There's nothing wrong with wanting change, but it might be an idol we're worshiping if we determine that this one thing is what's going to ultimately fill the void in our lives. Another question, what what things have you sacrificed the most for? You see, it's interesting, sacrifice and worship go hand in hand. 
Because what you prize most is what you pursue the hardest. And maybe you're sacrificing your life for something that in the end will just leave you empty. What is in your life that you feel like you can't forgive? Someone hurt you, humiliated you, ruined your reputation, took something or someone from you. Many times our inability to forgive is connected to the fact that they took away something that, that we can't be satisfied or content without. What has left you bitter? What is it you just can't shake? What are you allowing to steal your joy and satisfaction in life? When do you feel most significant? What is it that you hope people will find out about you? What do you hope that they'll think of you? You see, what makes you feel significant is probably where you're placing your identity, and, and that can be a fragile and uncertain prospect. Last question, where do, you, where do you turn when things aren't going well? Maybe you bury yourself in work or eat your way out of it or alcohol or drugs or exercise or dreams of more peaceful places. Our culture is built on this desire to escape pain. But all these things are temporary bandages to a greater wound that can only be healed by the one who created us and has offered life with us life with him forever. Because he meets us in our greatest need. He's more than we, we know we need. He's the bread of life that fills our greatest hunger for significance, purpose, and contentment. You see, the gifts will ultimately leave us empty because our hearts were created by God, for God, the giver. You see, over the centuries, people have come to this conclusion. One man named uh, Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, Lord. Our hearts are restless unt until they find their rest in you. Again, C.S. Lewis, If I find in myself desires which, which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Mathematician Blaise Pascal said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Even King Solomon said, Yet, yet God, had, <clears throat> God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. You see, Jesus calls us into relationship with him. Your heart was created in a way that only the internal love, the eternal love of God can fully and truly satisfy. When Jesus encourages them to drink his blood and eat his flesh as the bread of life, this is what he's getting at. He wants us to feast on his life, and the result is a life of forgiveness, peace with God, identity, purpose as a child of God. We're to be what we were made for, what he created us to be. You see, God not only wants to give us bread, he wants us to take that bread of life into our lives. And yet, some of us are still holding the bread out arm's length. And this comment, man, that, that looks like good bread. That bread sure smells good. You may even sing songs about the bread, read books that help you understand more about the bread, understand all the neutral, nutritional facts about the bread. But all of this falls short of believing in the bread of life, of putting your full trust in him and arranging your life around his. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
If you want to be satisfied, Jesus himself is the only thing on the menu. He is the bread of life, the one who satisfies. And so the question I leave you with today, if not Jesus, to whom will you go? Let's pray together. Father, I, th I thank you for Jesus' words here. Lord, help us to understand who Jesus is. Help us to understand not just about him, but Lord, to, to take his life fully into ours. Or give us an appetite for Jesus to know him more and more. Father, we need better bread than the, the bread that we've been seeking in this life. Lord, I pray that we might know the bread of life. That we might know Zoe life today and forever with you. Lord, pray that you would just help us to, to figure out where we're at. Help us to realize that we have nowhere else to go but you. And so, Lord, we just empty, empty our hands, empty our hearts, empty our lives, that we might fully embrace you, to know you as you really are, and embrace the life that you've created for us to live. Thank you for the purpose, the satisfaction that you give us today. Lord, we love you too, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, see you next time.